This is an audio-only version of a Then and Now video. To see the full video, search Then and Now on YouTube. Enjoy. Will the tongue ligament of my spirit never be loosened? Will I always jabber? What I need is a voice as piercing as the glance of Lynceus, as terrifying as the groan of the giants, as sustained as a sound of nature, as mocking as an icy gust of wind, as malicious as Echo's heartless taunting, extending in range from the deepest bass to the most melting high notes, and modulated from a solemn silent whisper to the energy of rage. The 19th century Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard is best known for giving us the concept of a leap of faith. He was a deeply religious thinker, but his ideas have as much relevance for secular lives as Christian ones. He was the grandfather of existentialism, a purveyor of authenticity, and of discovering amid conflicting beliefs and the demand to conform to the rules of society, who you really are. Although he was born in 1813, his works were not widely read in English until the middle of the 20th century. He published Either Or, his most famous work in 1843, and in it, through an array of pseudonyms and fictional characters, he discusses competing and often contradictory ways one might live their lives. Should you live for the moment? Should you seek pleasure? Or should you live for the interesting? Should you explore? Should you live dutifully, ethically? Should you conform to the rules of society? He suggests that ultimately there are three stages of life, three spheres of existence the aesthetic, the ethical, and the religious. Kierkegaard argues that most of our choices, at least at first, are made instinctively, justified by what feels right in the moment. We have urges and we act upon them. We might think of hedonism, maximizing pleasure, but Kierkegaard means aestheticism in a broader sense. Today, we talk more about aesthetics as theories of art and beauty. But what do we mean when we say something is aesthetically pleasing? That we find it pleasurable to look at, to listen to, to taste. Aestheticism, then, is about the immediate sensation, the perception being in the moment. This is deeper though than just maximizing base pleasures. Kierkegaard says, if I had in my service a submissive spirit who, when I asked for a glass of water, would bring me the world's costliest wines, deliciously blended in a goblet, I would dismiss him until he learned that enjoyment does not consist in what I enjoy but in getting my own way. So, aestheticism can be complicated. The sadist enjoys pain, for example. And then there's the reflective aesthet. The hedonist, the pleasure seeker, can always plan to maximize their aesthetic enjoyment. In either or, 
Johannes is a seducer whose pleasure is derived not from the act of seduction, but from the planning the act of seduction. Or there's the idea of cultivating a taste in more sophisticated music and wine. But the pursuit of aesthetic pleasure and enjoyment inevitably becomes boring, repetitive. Living in the moment becomes dull. One solution, he says, he likens to the rotation of crops. One is tired of living in the country and moves to the city. One is tired of one's native land and goes abroad. One is weary of Europe and goes to America. One indulges in the fanatical hope of an endless journey from star to star. Or, he suggests, one does not enjoy in a straightforward manner, but enjoys something completely different that one arbitrarily introduces. One sees the middle of a play, one reads the third section of a book. The character of the first half of either or recommends never getting married, never taking an official post, recommends delaying gratification to find the interesting, but ultimately it's a guidebook to aesthetic life that slowly begins to unravel. Are you really free if you submit yourself to the whims of unreliable pleasures? Do you ever find out who you really are? What you're capable of? Are you really in control, ever? Don't the guilty, gut feelings inevitably creep in when you act only for yourself? The asset becomes uncomfortable when they see someone else doing something for another person. There's a feeling of guilt, maybe. Ultimately, the ethical is unavoidable. No matter what you try, you cannot avoid being confronted by questions about what's forbidden, encouraged, popular, unpopular, wise or misguided. And it's these questions, Kierkegaard argues, that contribute towards creating an identity that isn't made up of arbitrary enjoyments in the moment. An identity exists through time. It endures, it has values and ideas. Take chess. You might pick it up initially because you enjoy it, but then it might frustrate you. You might get bored, but if you're wise, you might persevere because it's good for you for your attention span and logic and strategy in the long run. And enjoyment, we know, comes in ebbs and flows. There are different levels of enjoyment. And this has a moral dimension too. Being a good neighbour might not be something you always want to do all of the time, but you know in the long run it's right. In the second volume of Either Or, a character called The Judge makes the same argument about marriage. It may not always be easy, but it's good in the long term. But more than this, the judge argues that marriage has an aesthetic dimension too, that aesthetics and ethics are the same. While the hedonist argues that marriage becomes boring, the judge says that on the contrary, it creates new passions inaccessible to the base 
ask that. Marriage and ethics more broadly are like works of art. They reveal new passions, new ideas, new pleasures, and new ways of being. But here's the problem. Whether you follow your base desires as an asset, or you fulfill your ethical duties as a partner, a father, a neighbor, a good worker, whatever it is, you're being pushed and pulled around by either those desires or by society at large. How do you know what to do? Which identities, which ethical identities to adopt? Are you a liberal, a Marxist, an existentialist, a Christian, a Taoist, a parent, a mountain climber? These identities seem to come from outside of us, from society. And so how can they ever really be you without you following your own aesthetic desires? And it's not even as simple as doing what you're good at. One of his characters tells us that he gave up his position as a school teacher, a role he was ideally suited for, and so had nothing to gain from, and joined a travelling theatre company, something he had no such talent for, and therefore everything to gain. The answer, Kierkegaard says, lies in the idea of subjective truth. Imagine two types of knowledge. One is propositional, objective. You're taught that two plus two is four. But if I tell you that being a good neighbor is fulfilling in the long term, or that burgers are delicious, is that a different type of knowledge? Some knowledge has to be assimilated into your own life. You have to relate it to other things you know, work out what it means for you. But even mathematics is like this. You can understand the sum, but to reflect on what that means for your life, how you'd use it is, well, subjective, a kind of subjective truth. He says to understand and to understand are two different things. And he calls this double reflection, learn, assimilate. The most important thing he writes is that a person should grow in the soil to which he really belongs. Now, Socrates compared himself to a midwife. His role as a teacher was not to pass on knowledge directly, but to help students give birth to knowledge, to help them recollect what was already within them. But how does this help us choose how to live? whether we choose an aesthetic or an ethical life, and which ethical life, how we choose whether to be a good neighbour or a mountain climber. Kierkegaard's great challenge to his Enlightenment contemporaries was that reason, people giving you reasons, could only take you so far. You might be given reasons why you should become a good neighbour, or a mountain climber, or a husband, but there's no reason that can help you make that final decision. That comes from a subjective second reflection, some force within. And you can only do that with a leap of faith. Now, Kierkegaard was a deeply Christian thinker, but I want to stick as much as possible to the philosophy. 
Some would argue that's not possible, but here goes anyway. To take a leap of faith, to pick an identity, is to choose what feels best for you. But that feeling is a combination of what you've been told and what might be true and what you feel. And that's a subjective truth. Learning algebra is not particularly important. What's more important is how you use it, how you apply it to the world. And that's a very personal thing. So there's a sense in which what's important is how you feel and act and not what the objective truth is. And so action for Kierkegaard is extremely important. Take global warming. You might believe that it is true and that it's caused by humans and also believe that we should reduce our carbon emissions. But you can genuinely and committedly believe that and still not act, still not recycle or drive less. You can still be apathetic. For Kierkegaard then, what's crucial is how we embody our beliefs. Truth is subjectivity. And when choosing to embody knowledge about the world, in choosing our identities, tastes and beliefs, we might always find reasons for abandoning the course we're on. We have to persevere despite those reasons. He says, marry and you'll regret it. Don't marry, you will also regret it. Laugh at the world's foolishness, you will regret it. Weep over it, you will regret that too. He was criticising Hegel's idea that knowledge is synthesis, that there's a middle road between bachelorhood and marriage, between salad and ice cream, that combines the best of both and that over time things balance out. Kierkegaard says no, it's either or, and what's important is the choice. And what matters aren't the reasons really, but your choice based on passion to commit to a certain path and to have a kind of faith that it's the right path through the easy times and the difficult ones. He says, existing cannot be done without passion. For a subjective thinker, imagination, feeling and dialectics in impassioned existence inwardness are required, but first and last, passion because for an existing person it's impossible to think about existence without becoming passionate. So how is this religious? But Kierkegaard discusses this at length in many complicated books but I think there's one sense that might be relatable even to the most atheistic of us. When we're working out how we should live, we want to find out what's the best thing to do across time. The aesthet lives in the moment, for the moment, but the ethical and the religious person thinks more long-term. We're looking for rules about life that will be timeless, will be successful on the good days and the bad, tomorrow and in 10 years' time. There's a continuum from the finite and immediate, fleeting moment through to the infinitely true and eternally valid. So this desire to know the infinite, the perfect, the all-knowing is analogous with an infinite, perfect and all-knowing God. 
We're searching for the highest good, the absolute telos. Kierkegaard scholar Stephen Evans puts it like this. His attitude about eternal life parallels his attitude with respect to God's existence. In neither case do we have objective proof that's sufficient to ground belief. However, in both cases, the individual who is gripped by the proper kind of passion will naturally believe in God and seek eternal life. The proper worry is not whether there is such a thing as eternal life but whether I am the kind of person who will gain eternal life. Personally, I'm agnostic, but I think there's a profound link in Kierkegaard between subjective belief, eternally good actions and the pursuit of them, and as Evans puts it, being the kind of person who would gain eternal life. He shows us a path from living in the moment to living for something bigger, something more difficult, but hopefully something more fulfilling. That's one of the key messages you get from reading Kierkegaard, that the big life questions, questions about who you are and how you should live, they can't really be taught, they can't be communicated directly to you. They simply have to be done. You have to make, at some point, a leap of faith. Well, I'd highly, highly recommend reading Kierkegaard. He's an incredibly unique and uh, inspiring thinker. I'd suggest starting with The Essential Kierkegaard, uh, which takes some of the best bits from his very long, esoteric, complicated works and just draws out the bits that you'll probably find most relevant today. I've been reading Kierkegaard uh, for a longer video on authenticity that I'm working on, uh, looking at the history from Nietzsche to Heidegger, Camus, Sartre, and seeing what we can learn from that. So if you're looking forward to that, make sure you've hit that subscribe button, make sure you've hit that bell, which only a few of you have, somewhat disappointingly. So hit that now, go on. Give it a little tickle. Uh, and if you want to be amongst these incredible, incredible people scrolling up the screen right now, you can support the channel over on Patreon for as little as a dollar per month and get extras like scripts and your name in the credits uh, by going to patreon.com forward slash then and now. See you next week.